Welcome to the August 13th, 2020 meeting of the Science Fiction Club. Uh, we are on Zoom as usual, and we have a pretty good turnout, it looks like. So um, uh, we have, well, let's see, Roger's here. Aren't you, Roger? You were here. He is. He's here. I, um, I knew I heard that resonant voice coming muted. from somewhere. Yeah, he's muted. Uh, well, who wants to begin with a book that they have read recently? I or I suppose I could, as much as I remember of it. Oh. <laughs> All right, the book that I... Uh, should I? Sure. Go ahead. May I? <laughs> you may. The book, that I, the book that I read, actually, I read two. It's called the Nixia Triad. I don't know if anyone's heard of it by nope. Scott Rankin, I think his name is. So Nixia is spelled N-Y-X-I-A. It's, it's for junior, you know, it's for high school kids and above. And basically, it it's sort of like the Hunger Games. It's, it, the first book has to do with a group of, of teenagers, I guess, or who are, who are hired by this transnational company to uh, go to another planet and mine this, uh, this, this substance called Nixia. And it's supposed to be the most viable substance in the universe because it obeys one, one's thoughts and you can mold it into doing just about any type of thing you want. So these children are taken from poor areas around the world. The one who narrates it is an is a, is a Afro-American Afro from Detroit. And he, he, you know, and, and he, he sort of presents himself as like a sort of a hip-hop type person and everything. And the first book deals with their, they're being trained on a ship to be able to deal with the planet. So there's a lot of competition between the different members of, of their group. And then later on, a second group joins them. And it's a lot of analysis of the different um, members and their, psycholo their psychologies and conflicts and things like that as they gradually approach this planet called Eden. And the interesting thing is the inhabitants on the planet, whose, whose name I've forgotten, uh, are very well prepared to resist the encroachments of, er of Earthlings. Um, and this substance is only found on that planet. And apparently Earth tried to, um, to uh, get a treaty with them and they, were, and they were repulsed quite strongly. But it turns out they have a love for young children. And Babel International, which is the name of this, this corporation, is decided, you know, made a treaty with these inhabitants of, of this planet that they would send these children, which are the children that are on the, you know, being trained, and they would have the right for a certain number of days to mine this substance. And so, as I say, the, the first book deals with basically all the different strife that they go through and being trained in different types of games and stuff that they they're that they're taught to make them prepared to deal with this planet and the book ends when they're just entering um going down onto the planet the second book which i read deals with the actual interactions with them and the inhabitants of the planet and there's some interesting secrets there and then there's a third book, which unfortunately is not on Bard, which was a rather disappointing. It is on Bookshare, though, and it's also on Audible, which I haven't read the third book yet. 
But the second book is very interesting because it turns out that this uh, um, uh, Babel, which offered all these people a tremendous sums of money, you know, to go and and since they all come from poor families, they will allow them, you know, to live comfortably. Where it turns out that Babel never has the intention of having them return to Earth. Uh, their intention was to to bomb the planet, overcome the the inhabitants, and have the planet for themselves, and and you know get rid of the children. But what what they found out from the inhabitants is that their planet is about to be destroyed by the collision of their two moons, and their purpose is to try to return to Earth and to outwit Babel. And that's basically the sum of the two books. Hmm. How recently did the third one come out? Maybe it'll get on Bard. I'm hoping. I'm not. I don't recall. I can go and look and book sure. But how how often does Bard when they when they don't complete a series? Do they usually complete it, or they leave it hang, hanging? Uh, it's they've been known to leave series hanging. I can think of yeah. uh, three or four off the top of my head that they never finished, even no, though they were published years ago. Right. Uh, well, there the was, thing uh, is, uh, I recently, in fact, it was last night. I attended a Lua meeting, and the uh, the the collection development people were there from Bard. And they said that they are trying to improve the series business and um, that you, if you have any problems, you should contact your local um, regional library, make your needs known, and that they will forward the, you know, your need uh, to the right people. So... What we were told to do was to contact the re the local your local regional library and say, I've been reading this series. I've read books one and two. Right. I'd like to read book three, but it's only on Audible, and I can't afford to to uh, download the thing from Audible. So I would really appreciate it if you would, you know, do the third book. It is actually on Bookshare also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you could download it from Bookshare if you wanted. I did, but I I, I like the narrator so much, and I, w- I would very much like to read the third one, you know, by that narrator. And it's the same one, you know, they took it directly from Audible because it's an Audible, you know. An Audible. Well, then in that case, it's probably in process. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, if there's been a bit process. of a slowdown lately with uh, so. books production, book production from NLS. Uh, so it may come. It depends, as I said, on how long ago it was right. it came I out. Re- uh, but it still may come. Mm-hmm. But there have been series from years and years ago. I mean, uh, Mike Resnick's series, uh, Prophet, Oracle, and Soothsayer. I forget the order of the books. They did the first two and never did the third one. That's been 20 years or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Anderson's books... Um, they harvest the stars, harvest the fire. The stars are also fire. And the last book he did, Fleet of Stars, book, uh, Bard never did that. They did the first three, not the fourth one. They weren't direct sequels, but they were in the same universe. And Fleet of Stars was in the same universe as the other three. They never did it. Um, there were some Alistair Reynolds books. I think those are in process, actually. Uh, I haven't seen them, but 
I, I think they might be working on those, but those came out. The last one came out 14 years ago. I think they're working on them. Uh, they, they are. So, you know, you don't know. They might come out with it. They might not. Well, I think the more people that write to their regional libraries and say, yo, you know, um, because they've got, you know, 100,000 books. Now, I realize that Bookshare has 900,000 books, and that's, <laughs> you know, it's considerably more books. But, um, you know, I think letting them know is worth it. Yeah, but is there a link on the, on the bar website where you can actually email the library directly? Like, no, you're supposed to go through your regional. Regional, okay. Yeah, which is, is actually, yeah, that might they might send you the they, okay. Right. It won't be a killjoy, but I. How do you I tell if a book how, is in process? You go up to the go to the quick search on the nls.gov. Uh, what is it? loc.gov slash loc loc.gov slash nls, and there's a search field, a search, quick search, you know, it says search uh -huh. the catalog and then there's a quick search, basic text or whatever it's called. And then where it says keyword, you put in in process in one word. That's how they, oh, okay. and you'll get a thousand or more books listed. So you be oh, prepared okay. to. And, uh, and that quick yeah. search, that quick search can also be reached by a link that's in the list of links at the bottom of the main barred page to yeah, there is one there too. That's true. Yeah, there is one there too. I'll have to look um, at Bard Mobile to see if it's on there because that's really all I use is Bard Mobile. So. Yeah, I wouldn't have a. I would have no idea whether it's in yeah. there. But okay. that's yeah. I'll there check, there I'll are always that. a thousand or more books on that in process list. So, yeah. Uh, there's no way to know you know what stage of in process. They might be about to come up tomorrow, or it might be another year right. or so, depending right. on you know who's okay. doing it and so on. Roger. Yes. You want to go next? Well, I may as well. <laughs> yeah, you may uh, as well. Okay. Um, there was some discussion on the list a while back, very short little discussion about Earth Abides by George R. Stewart. So I got the idea that I'd bring that one to you this time. And... I can't help but compare this to Stephen King's The Stand. In fact, I think I heard somewhere that um, Stephen King was inspired by Earth Abides to write The Stand. Mm. In some ways, it's in some ways King's book is better, and in other ways, Earth Abides is better. But what it's about is a well another pandemic. And in both books, about 99.9% .9 of the human race uh, basically just drops dead. And it follows the few survivors, or some of the few survivors left. And i tell you one major difference between King's book and Stewart's book is that Stephen King loves to describe dead, bo rotting bodies <laughs> lying around all over the place. Um, Stewart, um, George Stewart doesn't like that. He avoids it. But in a way, Stephen King is more realistic there because let's face it, if 99.9% .9 of the human race just drops dead, 
you're going to have to deal with a lot of bodies. And there's something that both of them avoid that would be a real issue. And the question is, if they die, if that many people die of a virus, the next question is, what did the rest of them die of? Because there's going to be a real disease problem. There's going to be cholera spreading and tetanus and everything else you get from dead, rotting bodies. And neither of them address that. In any case, George Stewart postulates that as people were dying off, they gathered in certain areas, like maybe arenas or hospitals or something like that. And that's why they don't have to deal with dead people lying around all over the place. Um, I'm not too terribly sure that's realistic, although in the beginning of the book, Stewart does indicate at least, well, at least one body that's lying out in the open. The idea is that there is a character, by the way, I read this over 20 years ago, so if I'm a little vague on some things, forgive me. But um, there's, there is a, I think the main character whose name I forget, I think he was a geology student. And he was off in the California mountains doing his um, geology project when the plague hits. And he doesn't know that the plague hit. He doesn't know anything about that, but he ends up getting bitten by a snake. And he survives the snake bite, but he gets very, very sick. And he kind of holds up in a cabin out in the mountains to recover. And while he is there, um, someone comes along and actually opens the door and starts to walk in on him, whereupon he says something to the effect that he's sick and the guy looks absolutely terrified and runs away and the main character is saying now why is he so scared i'm suffering from a snake bite i'm not going to be infectious or anything well that's because he doesn't know what's going on out in civilization finally he recovers enough though that he manages to get in his vehicle and travel back to San Francisco. And that's where most of this takes place. Travels back to San Francisco, and there's nobody there. Like I said, everybody gathered in certain areas to die together. So the streets are just empty. And he doesn't know where all the people went. So he starts doing some exploring, and he eventually figures it out. And gradually, he runs into other survivors, and they start gathering together to make a community. Um, there is one scene where somebody is so upset over the depopulation of the area that he is parked in a car right outside a liquor store. In fact, the main character finds him by hearing the horn blowing, and when he finds him, the horn is blowing because he's passed out drunk on his horn. <laughs> he has been raiding the liquor store, and the guy noticed this guy didn't even go for the good stuff. He was just grabbing anything he could get to drink. 
one would think that if you were going to rob a liquor store with nobody around to stop you, you'd go for the really uh, top shelf stuff. But this one, no. Didn't. What you want is <laughs> what you want is the effect of the alcohol. So yeah. it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, uh, rock gut would be good for that, I guess. Um, but in any in any case, um, gradually the main character finds other people to gather around with, and they all kind of move into the same neighborhood. There's plenty of empty houses, so it's more convenient for them to just move into houses that are close together, and they form a little community. Um, now, here is an interesting thing. This book was published in 1949, and something happens that was virtually unheard of in a book in 1949, it, I would have thought that at that time, the publishers would really have avoided this like the plague that killed everybody anyway, you know, but it was the main character is a white guy who becomes romantically involved with a black woman. Mm -hmm. And the interesting, I suppose George Stewart was trying to make some kind of a point, maybe about racism or something. But if he was, he's not explicit about it, and he does not make it a big deal. It's just casually they mm -hmm. get together, and nobody, it, nobody seems to have a problem with it. Nobody hardly even mentions it. It's just made clear that it happens. In 1949... I kind of wonder what this author was really up to. He's just not explicit about it. In any case, they form a community, and um, obviously the author is a philosoph philosophical materialist. Unlike Stephen King, I don't know what philosophical framework Stephen King works with, but sometimes I wonder if he really believes in some of the supernatural stuff. In Earth Abides, nothing supernatural happens, though, which, as far as I'm concerned, is a very big advantage over the King book, because mixing that um, post-apocalypse world with supernatural stuff kind of gets on my nerves. But George Stewart does not do that, and as things go on, you will see that he is philosophical, philosophically materialist. Um, um, good grief, what are the symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome? <laughs> My wrist hurts here. <laughs> I'm, hold, I'm holding down, I have this thing set so that I'm muted unless I hold down the space bar and holding it down is making my wrist hurt. <laughs> I just wonder if I have carpal tunnel syndrome. In any case, um, community, they start having children and stuff and they want their children to be educated. So they organize a school so that they can teach the children. Um, they uh, rely on food mostly from grocery stores uh, most of the food decays and becomes unusable very soon but there's canned food which lasts mm. practically forever so they're always delving into opening cans of food but mm, i would think that it would be a good idea for them to start learning farming 
<laughs> and that, like I said, they organized a school and they tried to teach their children um, what you need to know to be a well-educated person. The trouble is in this new world that they exist in, um, a lot of what passes for education in, in modern day North America just doesn't apply. And the children get really bored with it very quickly because it hasn't, doesn't have anything to do with their lives. And eventually, if I may get ahead of myself here, eventually they just give it up. Okay, these children are going to be educated in a different way and they go out and start teaching them archery and stuff because uh, they're going to need it in the new world. By the way, they do have guns and they use the guns um, effectively. In fact, there was one guy who shows up I think I remember that his name was Charlie or something like that. It turns out to be a ne'er-do-well, and he is a problem to the community. So they just end up gathering around him and shooting him to get rid of him. But um, eventually the guns wear out. The ammunition goes bad as the years pass. Um, so they do have to learn archery in order to catch animals for food. Um, they eventually, they have, oh, very handy arrowheads handy. There's these little tiny discs that they keep finding in stores and in things that look like cash registers, little discs of metal that they bend and file and so on to make arrowheads out of. <laughs> <laughs> and it has this... Uh, brings something that uh, shows that the author is a materialist in that um, toward the end of the book when the main character has gotten to be very old and so on and the um, community is kind of regressing in their culture to kind of a hunter-gatherer culture um, they are telling him that they use the little discs that are brown and have a picture of a bearded man on them are good for shooting tigers while the discs with um, the, the picture of someone with wings on their ears are good for shooting something else. And he realizes that they have become superstitious and he's trying to explain to them it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. And they start developing other superstitions and he's explaining it He's trying to dissuade them from being superstitious. Um, but they go ahead and get superstitious anyway. Um, I got ahead of myself. There were some other things I wanted to mention about how at one point they, it's still years into the post-apocalypse that they do some repairs on some Jeeps, inflate their tires and fill them up with gas and so on and go exploring to see what the rest of the country is like. I think they made it all the way to New York City and then turned around and came back to California. But along the way, now this has to be a comment on race too. They come across these black 
sharecroppers somewhere in the southern United States who have survived, among the few survivors. And there is the <clears throat> mansion on the hill sitting empty, and they're still living in their hovels and farming down below without even thinking about moving into the mansion. Something stated about how they're just um, habit-bound or such. But in any case, toward the end, everybody, the whole community, kind of regresses to a hunter-gatherer where they run around shooting animals with bows and arrows. They have their superstitions. And Somebody all mute their, their Somebody needs to mute their computer. voice. Yeah, we're hearing Jaws from somebody. Oh, you guys hear me? Yeah, but somebody was I, stepping I, I, on you with uh, Jaws. Yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't hear a lot of what you were saying. Well, yeah. anyway. They were living on the mansion. They were, they, instead of moving yeah. to the mansion, they were living right. in the hovels. And that's where yeah, I think it's explained, it's explained by it's just force of habit or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think this was a statement about race, too, some kind of statement about it. But in any case, as time progresses, the whole community becomes hunter-gatherers. They become uneducated. In fact, the main character was so anxious for them to become educated that he wanted them to treat books with great respect. But he overdid it, and now they regard the library. There was a university library there that no one goes near and does not dare go in because they see it as some kind of a, a sacred, sacred temple. Sacred hollowed ground, yeah. Oh, my uh, God. Oh, well, but, it sounds like quite a book, Roger. It, yeah. it really does. Well, like I said, it's been over 20 years since I've read it. But and I'm sorry you couldn't remember more pretty than well. that after 20 years. <laughs> so, huh? After well, 20 years, I'm sorry you couldn't recall any more of it because you, know, you, you did a fantastic job. I'm yeah, okay. that's I read it quite a month impressive, ago, and I can't actually. do that. <laughs> okay, try it out sometime. Earth Abides Earth by Abides. George R. Stewart. George this R. Stewart. Great, it's a classic. Actually. It's recognized yeah. as a classic. Um, it sounds very good. It is one of the classics. Um, from, yeah, back, was it written in four? Was it was it published in 49 or is it, it was just published in 49 so it must have been uh -huh. written prior to that but right. probably probably the late 40s so yeah. like i said he covers things like like a romance between a white guy and a black woman and uh that was just you know scandalous the publishers usually wouldn't touch something like that at that right. time no that was courageous uh, david f is here i'm sorry yeah david i just got here. in i just david. got in okay. Um, well, and uh, you had some problems. Yeah, the last was... time. Uh, oh. Yes, was it last time or the time before you had? Some right. Problems? Well, I had trouble getting in or whatever. I don't know. But, but you're um, here, so you should go because you have been uh, neglected. Why? Thank you, good so sir. I I, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, Okay, um, just one comment before I tell you about the books I'm really going to talk about. I finally finished the Destroyer Men series. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's 14 blessed books. Is it worth it? 
I think so. I think so. So if you're interested in war and uh, technology, Ray, weaponry, Ray, the difference between smoothbore and, and rifled uh, weaponry, by all means, read it. The characters are interesting and, um, you know, whatever. But the book I really want to talk about, the, the two books I want to talk about are Linwood Barclay's um, Chase and Escape. And I really enjoyed these books, I have to tell you, because they were unique. And what the premise is, is that um, this institute, you know, there's always an institute. <laughs> and it's never a good thing. <laughs> no, never yeah. a good thing. Um, but what they did was they developed um, animals, uh, dogs, that had computers placed in them. Oh, uh, so that they became extra intelligent and they could communicate with people via their, uh, via the, the people's cell phones. They could send texts. They couldn't talk. The dogs couldn't talk, but they could, you know, and they were very intelligent in all this. And, um, the main character in these books is, a young kid, he's like between 12 and 14, and his parents disappear, and he thinks they're dead, and he goes to stay with his aunt, and um, that's not a very good situation. Well, he ends up hooking up with this special dog who escapes from the Institute. And so the first book is all about how they're being chased and and so forth and and um, they they get to the end of the book and as this guy helps them out and so forth and um, they but they get caught again mm -hmm. and uh, the second mm -hmm. book is escape and they escape naturally. And the second book is all about how they escape and what they discover about the kids' parents and who is really a friend and who isn't. You know, it's one of those kind of books where, you know, you, you, uh, you've got the child and the child discovers that some adults are good and some adults are bad and some adults appear to be good but really are bad and some adults appear to be bad and really are good. Um, you know, it's it's the classic themes, but it's very well written. Both of these books are very well written, and it's Linwood Barclay, or Barclay, depending on how you pronounce it, but it's B-A-R-C-L-A-Y, Barclay. And um, the titles are Chase and Escape. And I highly recommend them as light reading, they're not um, earth shakers. They're YA, um, so um, there's nothing, you know, majorly earth shaking in them. 
but it's a fun premise and um I just enjoyed them. I really Are they did. on Bard or Bookshare or both? They're on Bard. Oh, okay. I didn't oh, check Bookshare because I read them on, on Bard, but they may be on Bookshare. If you the like them. So go ahead, Liz. Sorry. No, I said the author sounds very familiar to me. Um, he writes mysteries. Yeah, I've yeah, read I'm other books by him that are. I'm really just good. wondering because it seems like I've read something recently. I and I'm, think I'm just... he's Canadian. I read something about a building with a crazy elevator and something. Oh, did, did he write elevator? Oh, pitch? elevator uh, pitch. Yes, yeah, elevator pitch. Okay, that's oh, what yeah. it was. And yeah, that's that was really a great good. book. Yeah, that was a great book. I think that's he, and he's either from Canada or New York or something. I forget. Well, New York makes sense because they have a lot of tall buildings, and yeah, maybe he <laughs> was in an elevator one time. Well, it's Toronto, but <laughs> well, they they do too. They have that Space Needle. Yeah, that's extremely tall. That's got to have elevators in it. <laughs> so maybe that's where he got the idea. Um, share um, Sherry or Liz? Should we go? Who, who wants to go first? We go oh it doesn't it, alphabetically yeah go Liz. okay okay um okay i'm gonna I, i'm embarrassed after i i hate to try to follow roger because boy he gave a really thorough report um, <laughs> okay so the book that i'm going to report on is called the nothingness imperative and it's written by herb guggenheim it is not on Bard as of yet. It is on Audible, probably on Bookshare as well, maybe even in Kindle. Um, I heard about him through um, the ACB convention. I don't know, I happened to be flipping around once and then he was just hawking his book. Anyway, um, the book is funny. There are parts of it that are really funny. Um, it's the main character is Skip Gershwin, who is kind of a mediocre English professor. Um, he's a, a low vision, you know, got a legally blind, a little bit more than low vision, but you know, he's certainly not not got a lot of great sight. So some of the parts that I enjoyed about the book was his commentary on um, what his life was like as a low vision person, because that's the area that I fall into too. I mean, even to the point of, you know, somebody, one of his coworkers barged into his office one day and, you know, kind of pushed his way into his computer. And he said, mine isn't working right now. I need to borrow yours for just a second. And then he starts complaining about all of the magnification and <laughs> all the settings that he has on his computer <laughs> to make it work for him. And then the coworker is complaining about how inconvenient that was for him. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's real, that, that happens. Or, you know, standing or listening to coworkers make plans and then all of a sudden somebody say, oh, that's right, you really probably couldn't join us, could you? Because you wouldn't be able to drive there. I mean, it's just like, oh, geez, you know? So that's the kind of, you know, environment he works in. But in the beginning of the book, he's with this kind of sort of girlfriend, but, but not really, they can't make a commitment. He can't make a commitment. So she's in Denmark, I think it's in Amsterdam, um, and he comes back and she gives him a, this silver, uh, silver cylinder, silver in color, silver uh, cylinder as a gift. And she said, it's just an unusual thing. I found it. Um, and, you know, he liked it. He really admired it because it was just, 
it was he couldn't figure out why he was so attracted to this cylinder. It was just a solid gold, platinum, silvery, you know, cylinder. So when he gets back, um, he starts noticing that sometimes when he's holding the cylinder and he thinks about something, he actually is there. It's like transported there. He's transported back to being with his girlfriend or he's transported to some oh, nice. place back in history. Pardon? That sounds nice. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, it gets weird. It might not be. So he, yeah, yeah, exactly. He notices that his office mate, who's kind of a um, confused uh, guy, transvestite um he's confused about his uh, all of that stuff and just but he has one of these cylinders too and he doesn't know where it came from he doesn't remember how it got to him but he really likes it and um he leaves he leaves the office one day and it, it, the skip is holding both of the cylinders i think there may have been some things that happened out of sequence here but anyway he discovers that once he's got two cylinders that he's holding them close together he notices they somehow magically fuse together and that's really weird because he can't he starts pounding on it he can't beat it apart with a hammer he can't chip it he can't do it but he picked it up and he held it again and he, he could pull it apart and he describes <coughs> it as like pulling apart toffee and then it reforms itself Anyway, so he, uh, oh, he just has these really weird dysfunction. This guy is 60 years old. I want to point that out because you really have to work at remembering that he's 60 years old. He's very immature. He approaches relationships the way a 16-year-old, maybe a 15 or 14-year-old boy would. Um, he he uh, is, doesn't know how to gain the respect of his students. He's easily bamboozled. And anyway, he finally meets up with this girl who introduces him to this, like, and I can't remember the name of the group, but it's a support group that she goes to. And she says basically that she thinks he would benefit from because he worries too much about reality. And then we find, you know, the book, is, I mean, yeah, the book is kind of set at just as the Trump era. It's just before the election in 2016. He's convinced that there's no way Donald Trump can win the election. And it would be absolutely, yeah, would be absolutely horrible and disastrous if he did. And he finds himself worrying about this a lot. And so she decides that this, this group and the whole purpose of this group is to get you to acknowledge that life will be much easier if you just rid yourself of the shroud of reality <laughs> and give in to, you know, not worrying about anything, you know, just letting it all go, not, not, not caring about reality because that's the only way you're going to survive. Um, he starts noticing that more and more people are showing up with these, these cylinders and, um, Again, then, then he, then, okay, then there's this neighbor in his building. He's living, he's renting this apartment that he can barely afford, but it, it's in a, a high price building, but he's like subletting it or something like that. And um, his neighbor across the street, oh, see, it gets very confusing. 
his neighbor across the hall is involved with this scientific uh, oh it's 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 like a scientific terrorist kind of thing they've got they've they've decided that what they're going to do is um set off an atomic bomb if uh oh and this is the part where my memory is failing me anyway so they've got this bomb so so skip is encounters these two federal agents that basically um, have some dirt on him and they say they can make that all go away if they'll help them um, expose this and, and get, um, get information that his neighbor is trying to sell the secrets of this dirty bomb atomic thing to foreign, foreign agents. Um, so he's trying to, to figure that out and, uh, it just gets to the point where he discovers that the ultimate goal of this support group that his girlfriend has gotten him involved with is to gather up all of these cylinders and join them all together. And when they're joined all together, they form this ring. And then the group, everybody holds on to their part of the ring and they focus on going back. Everybody goes back to the beginning of time and preventing the Big Bang from ever happening. So oh, we're try heavens. I can't help it. I can't help it. sounds awful. I'm sorry, what? It sounds awful to me. But... It, it was. It was awful. It was awful. I, I struggled through it, and the only reason that I struggled through it is, again, I, this is his first, uh, first novel. He's a blind guy. I want everybody to try And I'm just like, Oh my God! You know, so well, it has a great I, title. That's at least yeah. But the nothingness imperative. But that's that's exactly what the group was was going back to the nothingness imperative. So that sounds like that, a good I, spy I, novel title. Somehow. Who? Oh, they have those geez. kinds of titles. Who wrote it again? Um, Herb oh. Guggenheim. Okay. Herb Guggenheim. Do you know him? I'm, I hope no, you I'm, don't know him. No, I've never heard of him. I just wondered. There no were problem. some funny parts about the book, and I, you know, I just I don't know how to do that because it was just really not a very good book, um, and there was no explanation. You find out at the end that the the original amusement park ride that he and his girlfriend were on at the beginning of the book, that was the that was the like the mothership, and that was the one creating all the cylinders. And I'm like, I oh. don't understand this at all. It was well, really bad. But Liz, can I can I just ask you? Yeah. What was the what was the theme of the book? What was the whole point of writing it? I mean, what was what I, was the main? You know, that's okay. The, the okay the, the theme the the main theme as I understood it was that they were there were two things they were trying to basically I think he was saying that the human race was so messed up that this group decided the only way they could deal with it is to go somehow transport it back to time and prevent it from ever happening to begin with. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. It, okay. It was it was that bad. Oh, sorry. It, it sounds really bad. Um, just to uh, just to put in a plug, um, I am uh, going to be on Fiction Old and New uh, the first Friday in September, discussing my science fiction book. 
So well, hopefully it's better than this one because I just bought well, it today. So <laughs> no, <laughs> oh, you did, huh? There are only so I, I can't edit. I may not be able to edit everything out here. So uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I I would like to know. Um, and I was a little. How do we review books that? were really bad i mean should we not bring those to the group no i mean I I, I, it's a serious to. question I mean, sure i, I think mean, you no, have to I the person has to be thick-skinned they enough have to be to enough bad. they have to be able to take it i mean that's okay they're going to get worse but, if, if, they they get, if they ever get famous they're going to get worse than the magazines right yeah. and the thing is that if you say a book is bad then you have to say why and see the the better case you make for saying that it's bad, um, the better review you make because uh, the whole point of a review is to evaluate. It felt disjointed to me, and the uh, character develop. Uh, yeah, well, it was there was you know it was there there wasn't a lot of nice smooth transitions between the spy aspect of the book and what he was trying to stop these people from doing. And a lot of people get killed and. I don't know. It just felt a little really disjointed. Like again, the, the book was humorous. I thought it was nice, tongue and cheeky um, about you know the only way to survive the Trump era is to shed shed your veil of reality. <laughs> that was kind of funny. I I thought that was funny, and I did did like the fact that he he did talk about some of the issues that people who have low vision kind of struggle with. Um, that you know, because, you know, you're out in a work world and you're either totally blind or you're totally sighted, but there's a lot of us in the gray area. And I thought he did a nice job with that. I would have liked to have seen more of that. Um, <laughs> but I would like to have also him grow the character of Skip into a little bit more of a mature guy because, you know, he was 60 years old, but again, he approached life from such a young kind of immature way that I really had to keep reminding myself that this guy was 60 years old. So okay. um, I'll stop there. <laughs> um, um, Sherry, do you have something? Yes. My book is oh, Three right. Laws Lethal by David Walton. Three Laws Lethal. And it's about AI and self-driving cars. The Three Laws oh, Lethal oh my, refers that, that's a big to... big theme these days. It is a big theme. The Three Laws Lethal title refers to Asimov's Laws of Robotics, which they refer to and slightly alter. Um, Brandon and Tyler start a self-driving car company, along with Naomi, who's a programmer, and Abby, who's a business person. And they get pretty popular, and someone gets killed by one of their cars, which destroys their business. And Brandon, who's a real bad guy, ends up blaming Tyler for it, and they kind of split up their friendship. Brandon is wealthy, gets his hands on his dad's money through a really bad act, and starts his own car company on the East Coast with Naomi as the programmer. Naomi and Tyler are really good friends, and one of the things I think you you guys who are much more versed in sci-fi than me, is they make a ton of sci-fi references when they're chit-chatting. It's just part of their relationship where one of them will make a sentence and the other one will name the book and author that that, mm -hmm. that was in. And that's Don't probably a lot of fun. A virtual world where this core intelligence learns or something? Yes. I, I think get, I read this. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep, you're right. That's okay. Oh, no, that's fine, Dave. Uh, that's fine, David. <laughs> I'm getting to that. Um, I think anyone who's really... I think people would enjoy that. I didn't get most of the references, I'll admit, but I think they would be fun well, if you got Evan them. would. 
Yeah, I think, Evan, you would in Maybe. a second. <clears throat> and part of Naomi's thing is she does create this virtual world with people she calls mics. And at first, she has them in this world to see how they evolve. And they get smarter. They use mirrors to create more sunlight to grow more food, for instance. And she starts hmm. using these mics in the car driving business and the AI stuff gets really really complicated I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that but they learn to anticipate people's needs and stuff like that oh. and um, there's some ethical things that come up like uh, there is a lawsuit where a self-driving car was going along and a tree fell in the road and the car swerved and hit a motorcycle guy and killed him Ooh. and it's like the motorcycle guy's girlfriend sued the car company and it's like is, the, is that okay? Did the car see that as a person or did it see it as an object? And even if it saw it as a person, is it better to save the lives of the people that are it's responsible for in its vehicle at the cost of killing someone else? A lot of that comes up. Brandon gets a military contract, so there's a lot of stuff that comes up like, should the police be able to take control of a car for an Amber Alert or for somebody fleeing a, you know, murder or something like that. Mm. Tyler ends up starting his own car company on the West Coast and competition ensues. And of course, some cars do go haywire a bit and how they resolve that is part of the book too. I thought it was a pretty good book. It's only 11 hours and I thought it was well worth the read. Right. Yeah, those are kind of ethical dilemmas. I mean, even people have to try to solve them and they're not perfect at it either. Um, yeah, yeah. Expecting an AI to do it. Well, there people are people often had higher standards for AI than they have for people. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that in the medical field, um, but that's just how it's going to be. Um, um, oh, there was another point I was thinking about when uh, Liz was talking about that other book about uh, reality versus, you know. Um, I was reading a book about the future that I scanned, and I don't know if I'll ever get it up to Bookshare about. Um, the, the worry that many some people are having now about what they call super normal stimulation how you know with movies and games and stuff becoming more and more realistic you can have a more intense experience than you can have in reality and is this going to pull people away from reality as they get more yeah, and more to, live in a virtual world yeah yep david all right you are the sure. final yes i'm sorry it's I got getting late so i'm probably not yeah. going to I'll, I'll be brief. The book is called Verified by Joelle Charbonneau. She's known for a trilogy of books that of the test series that are that's a dystopian series. She does something similar in this one in that the world is a future America where the country is very controlled. If you want to be an artist, you have to sort of audition because you're going to be used to make a city beautiful. What happens is the girl whose mother's an artist is um, she's hit by in a car crash, you learn later that there's, it's very suspicious. She, she, she eventually is given a paper with the word verify on it. And she starts to realize that everything she's told by her government is not true. They, they have made it a, almost a crime to own paper because you're supposed to recycle it. So that way nobody has any books, everything's on a screen and you know how easily things can be manipulated on a screen. And she finds a group of rebels, you know, you can kind of see where it's going. She um, finds a group of rebels who have done everything they have all these older books dictionaries and she gets with them and she's trying to she learns that her mother was in fact 
offed by the government and that she is going to try to work with these people to overthrow it. This is the first in either a duology or a trilogy. It's young adult and it's kind of predictable, but it, I thought it was relatively interesting. It, it, I think it's to make young people think about the value of a printed page, which you cannot manipulate the way you can on a screen. Didn't either Amazon or Kindle change a book on and it did it on everybody's little iPad or they deleted it. As and everybody I, I went, recall, they and everybody went, a book. Yeah, and everybody went crazy. They got a lot of, and then they had to restore it. Well, I yeah, forget what the reasoning was there, but I certainly anybody can Google it. I think out. was that it was re, it was released too soon. wasn't Wasn't that it? It was released before they released the official they, release date, they so they it, had to delete it. And they, they took, took it, it back. back. It shows. How, I think that that's what happened. Shows how insubstantial and how ephemeral some of this well it also shows you be. that you don't really control that device exactly when the company decides that they want to do something to it they can and you don't really have any you can't well, really do anything about it that device or even your computer when microsoft wants to upgrade it eventually it does <laughs> yeah yeah that's this, what i this, heard this 5g world is starting to get a little scary Yep. And that was basically it. Mine wasn't long. Is that that was what was that yeah. called again? Verified by Joelle Charbonneau. She yeah. um she kind of does dystopian stuff with technology for young young adult people. I just took a peek at it. It was all right. I like the references to libraries and different authors and things. It was I think to make kids think that life isn't just an iPhone screen. I think that's kind of why she wrote it. For that <laughs> is it on Bard or Bookshare? Uh Bard. Okay, and Charbonneau, the French spelling? Yeah, but it's DB99177, if you wanted that. 99177. Pretty soon we'll have DB100,000. I wonder what it'll be. Yeah. Uh, yes, we're going to get there fairly soon. We sure are. Uh, I thought we, well, there was some discussion on the Bard talk list. We might, the consensus seemed to be that we might get there by August, but since they had a bit of a slowdown in the production, if, there, if all these DBC books were added, we'd be over there by now. We'd be over it by now. But they're, right. Uh, they're I guess not. They're, but we're I, in the 99,300s now. So. I guess their system is set up to handle six digits. Yeah, I guess they're going to be able to do it okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I've noticed gonna... when you look at the old, like the DB07149, you never see it as just DB7149. It has to be five units. I've I noticed that. You know, I don't know what the Ooh. lowest DB or RC number ever was, but I've always noticed they were always listed as, you know, RC or DB zero, and then the four numbers back when they didn't mm -hmm. have ten thousand yet. I, I guess they had to do it for their computer. Yeah, that would be the, an interesting trivia question to find. Yeah, out that's what the a, first, that's the first uh, book Bart ever posted. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. it has to do with the Library of Congress. Uh, right, machine uh, mark language. Library system, and also it has to do with the fact that the computers that are being used by the Library of Congress are Linux computers. So, Well, too, speaking as a former programmer, you want your field to be the same length if possible. Yeah, so they'll put a leading edge zero to yeah, all it. Yeah, it works better if it's the same length, usually. So I guess they're going to... I guess they're going so to they're going to put a zero in front of all the uh, five-digit numbers. So, I, you know? They may have probably. To. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I wonder if there are any titles in the hundred thousands in the in-process books right now. Wow. That seems very likely because, mm -hmm. as I said, as I mentioned, when somebody asked how you 
there are usually more than a thousand books on that list, and as I, they're already in the ninety-nine thousand three hundreds. If you look at the latest oh. bar uh, offerings, well, I don't mind staying on a little while to hear your book, Evan. Is, is the in-process list would, on the NLS website or on board? It's, it's on, on the NLS. NLS oh. Quick Search, but oh, that's, yeah. there's a link to it on Bard, though. Oh, there is. Yeah, there is. Yeah, at the bottom of the main Bard page are a series of links. It's one of them. Okay, I'll have to look at that. I never go there. I'll have to look at the. I never go down there at that part. I'll have to do that. Well, I have a book, but it's not on Bookshare yet. I'm doing a rescan of a book I read. I just handed it off to the Proust reader a couple of days ago, so it shouldn't take too long. Um, it's called Protector by Larry Niven, and if anybody, yeah. any of you have read Ringworld, um, you might remember, or Ringworld Engineers, you might remember that um, the pack protector, Tila Brown, who was actually remained behind in Ringworld, turned into a pack protector because she found the repair station that was there, and they, and they found the, and she found the plant that has the virus in it to convert, well, uh, convert a breeder into a pack protector and they refer to this book in Ringworld Engineers, they refer to the guy who's the main character in this book which was written, this was written Protector was written in 1973 though it's based on a novella or a short story that was written in 1967 and um, so it turns out that this one is about um the protector who comes to to uh, Earth from the core of a galaxy in following an expedition that was sent here by a previous group of pack protector ships that founded a colony on Earth. Now, see, um, the pack have three generations. Uh, there's the children, and then there are the breeders, which are human adults. And they're not just human adults, they can be other races also because they've evolved over the millennia. If you read Ringworld, uh, the Ringworld engineers, you'll see. Um, so, uh, but, um, but if they don't have children to protect, they tend to lose their motivation unless they can turn it to something else, such as say the whole race, you know, protecting the whole race from something. They're, they're very warlike um, they spend a great deal of time fighting with each other on their home world and, um, but they're very smart. They're very much smarter than humans. So he loses, he, you know, he was uh, in an alliance in a war and he, um, uh, lost his children and, but he goes to the library. There's only one apparently. And he finds uh, this, the records of this old mission. And he does finally have it, one child, but he has to protect, try to protect her. But um, he uh, finds the records of this old mission that was sent over two million years ago. Um, and he designs a ship and he enlists the aid of some of the other childless pack protectors. And he goes to Earth and he finds out that the humans, which were the pack breeders, the pack originally died off uh, on Earth, and the humans, they didn't have the, vi the, the, the plant that they need that contains the virus to transform breeders into the 
final stage of their species would not grow on earth and he figured out why and he brought it with him and so now meanwhile they're they're while he's coming to earth there's you know human civilization is evolving and there's the belters you know the asteroid belt people they mine asteroids and they're kind of libertarian and they're you know you know the old gung-ho independent space people and so they detect this outsider because he has magnetic monopoles in his ram scoop and in his ship and they they go out and mine for these they're very because they're uh they have technological uses and so somebody's in a good position to meet this guy and so that's jack brennan who was the guy who he was out prospecting out in the outer solar system and he matches course with this guy and the protector wants to find out if this is the right solar system. You know, he's not sure. He, he not exactly sure which star, you know, his previous, the previous expedition went to, but then he finds out, you know, that he is correct. And these are, this is the right star because he meets Jack Brennan and Jack Brennan gets a hold of this tree of life. That's what it's called. Uh, this plant, you know, cause uh, the protector takes him over to his ship to uh, study and look at him. And, um, and so then Jack Brennan learns from this protector, you know, he talks to him, then he kills him because he says he would try to exterminate humanity. This is, this is not good because he, he wants to turn all, you know, he wants to turn people into the, the protector species. And then of course they're going to fight. So he isn't going to want to leave human civilization alone. So he kills him before he figures it out. He's actually, because humans are smarter than pack breeders because they've evolved over a couple million years, they're smarter. You know, Jack Brennan's smarter than the original protector who was mm -hmm. stupid. And so then he meets, oh man, I'm going on too long. Uh, this isn't even the end of the first half of the book. There's a second half, which is about uh, Jack Brennan. He discovers that there's a pack fleet on the way towards Earth because something's happened in the galactic core. And if you read, uh, I think it was Ring, I think he mentions it in the Ring World Engineers. There's been some kind of explosion in the galactic core. So, uh, uh, the pack protectors are leaving and they're coming to where they knew this protector went because they know there's a habitable world there. And so he has to try to stop them. And so um, I guess that's enough to tell you what the book is about. Uh, I enjoyed it. It's Larry Niven. It's kind of like putting on old shoes. Um, um, his writing isn't complicated. He doesn't explain everything as well as he should uh sometimes but overall i enjoyed it it was it was pretty good and i'm gonna have a better scan on bookshare here um as soon as this proofreader gets done like maybe next week i'll mention it on the one the one on bookshare is certainly readable but it's really not in very good shape and i wanted to do it over again because i didn't want to have to read that um so anyway that's my book, Protector by Larry Niven, and I enjoyed it pretty well. I've been wanting to read it for years, ever since I heard, you know, read in Ringworld Engineers, you know, about these. I wanted to know more about this story, and I finally discovered that he had written a, a novel, 
you know, that he mentions in Ringworld Engineers. And that's then we get the whole story of protectors. So there you go. So if anybody's still awake. Yep. Well, I'm slowly fading. I, um, well, I'm going to close the meeting by saying the next meeting of the Science Fiction Club will be on Thursday, September 10th, uh, 2020.